Philips and Massimo have teamed up to provide a non-invasive, continuous hemoglobin monitoring solution that seamlessly integrates into your critical care workspace. The solution combines the innovative monitoring capabilities of Philips and Teleview with advanced Massimo Rainbow Set technology to provide real-time visibility to changes or lack of changes in a patient's hemoglobin concentration. To learn more, visit philips.com slash Massimo. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Patrick M. Kahanek, MD, MCCM, on pediatric severe traumatic brain injury and the updated guidelines recently published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Kahanek is the director of the Safar Center for Resuscitation Research at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Pat. Before we start, Pat, do you have any disclosures to report? I don't. Okay. Uh, Can you just start by uh, giving us a sort of overview of what are the main challenges specific to treating pediatric severe TBI? Well, uh, that's a great question, and thanks for having me on, uh, Margaret. Uh, As you know, not only pediatric, but adult TBI has been, uh, in the last decade, wrestling with uh, the the fact that no new therapies have been able to be successfully brought to uh, uh, the bedside. Uh, And... uh, Part of this has to do with uh, a number of factors, but one that is believed to be pretty important is the fact that TBI is very heterogeneous. And um, all you have to do is look at the CT scans of 10 consecutive patients with severe TBI, and half the time you wonder if you're dealing with the same disease. And these endophenotypes are all being treated the same way. And uh, so the heterogeneity is a, is a big challenge. And uh, so you can imagine trying to develop a singular guideline to treat what, in essence, may be kind of multiple uh, uh, phenotypes of the same disease uh, can be, uh, uh, you know, potentially problematic. And uh, uh, so that, that's certainly one of the, the, the greatest challenges, I think, uh, One of the other challenges is that uh, for the past four decades, or maybe even more, uh, we at the bedside have focused on treating intracranial hypertension, uh, raised ICP, as our primary target, uh, while it's now certainly recognized that a number of other mechanisms are operating, things such as axonal injury, delayed neuronal death, uh, vascular dysregulation, inflammation, all of these processes may or may not give any kind of signal uh, to the ICP. And despite that, they may be pretty darn important to uh, uh, to target to try to improve outcome. And so uh, that, I think that's one of the other big challenges. You could say that's a challenge. Now it's also a challenge for the future. Uh, I think despite all that, though, the uh, uh, since the last guidelines uh, was published uh, now nearly uh, uh, nearly 10 years ago, uh, there have been uh, uh, 
uh, I think some reasonably uh, significant advances. And so uh, this time when we uh, when we got together, we were pretty excited to have a little bit more to work with, I guess you would say, and uh, and thus uh, the new guidelines. What were the methods you used to develop these guidelines, and what is the scope of the guidelines? We had the good fortune of having now this being the third edition of the guidelines, and so we had a, I guess you would call it an infrastructure team that was already developed. Uh, this is Nancy Carney, Annette Totten, and the uh, the group out of the University of Oregon Health Sciences Center, and they're evidence-based medicine experts. And they've been instrumental to uh, uh, the guidelines development uh, for all three uh, editions. And so they were really already in place. So what we did this time was uh, broaden the, uh, the spectrum of people working on the TBI guidelines uh, uh, adding uh, things such as not not just critical care and pediatric critical care and neurosurgery, uh, but also child neurology, anesthesiology, uh, and uh, pediatric emergency medicine, etc. Uh, to to uh, put together a, an even more multidisciplinary uh, team, certainly in the spirit of uh, pediatric critical care. Um, the the other facets of the guideline development also followed suit with uh, with the prior editions uh, of the guidelines. We used uh, a level one, two, and three recommendation, depending on the, the quality of the evidence. And um, and uh, the the only other things I would say is that, in contrast to the prior edition of the guidelines, we. We uh, did two things that I think are really, uh, really nice additions. Uh, uh, first, we, in addition to publishing the full guidelines, you could say the Bible or whatever, uh, that is a supplement in pediatric critical care medicine, we, we published an executive summary in the regular pages and also duly published in the journal Neurosurgery. And those are really the cliff notes, uh, kind of a thumbnail and they're really easy to read, and we did things like uh, italicizing all the new, all the changes, et cetera. It's, it's really, uh, I think, uh, very, very uh, easy to, uh, to understand. And then to top it off, I think we did something that is really terrific, and that is uh, we published an algorithm article that is an accompaniment to both the guidelines and the executive summary. And this is something that we did not do in the last guidelines uh, because it is a both consensus and evidence-based document. And a little bit on the evolution of this, um, you may or may not know that the uh, Brain Trauma Foundation, uh, which has been very supportive of these guidelines, a number of years ago was a little bit more, I would say, on the side of purity. And they wanted evidence-based recommendations, uh, kind of let's get away from consensus. And, uh, and so for many years, that was really the focus. And in one sense, it was very difficult because the quality of evidence we have isn't necessarily the greatest, uh, although it's improving. 
but the the most common request I I received from people was where's our bedside handbook where's our algorithm and uh, and so I think finally uh, there is a was a recognition of a great need for that and so this time we have a consensus plus evidence based. Uh, article that accompanies it. And I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but it's really terrific. It has some truly awesome uh, figures in it. And, uh, and it also, uh, you may or may not know that uh, the, that Robert Tasker and I are the, the dual first authors of that. And one of Robert's really clever contributions to it was to literally go through every article that generated evidence in the guidelines and take the treatment regimen that was used out of that article and in essence assemble a complete compendium of what was the background care used in all of those articles and then synthesize that into kind of a a background uh, you could, couldn't call it necessarily truly evidence-based, but a but better than just consensus, I guess I would call it. And it was a really nice addition. Uh, and uh, and I, and as I say, I think the readers will will find that uh, that uh, com- component of what we put together to be really helpful. What are some of the newest and perhaps most notable points in the new guidelines, um, and what might clinicians find most helpful? Well, there are there are nine new recommendations. There are a total of twenty-two, and the wording on a few of the others did uh, modify a little. But in the nine new recommendations, I think um, uh, some of the most notable um, one in the neuroimaging section is that. Uh, uh, that you should not exclude the possibility of an elevated ICP on the basis of a normal initial CT scan. Uh, and uh, then in the uh, in, uh, of note, although it's not new, it's certainly noteworthy that we continue to have a level three recommendation for ICP monitoring. And for a threshold of 20, you may or may not know that the adult guidelines, the new adult guidelines, recommend a threshold of 22. One of the probably most important updates is that there now is a level two recommendation for bolus hypertonic saline uh, in the treatment of uh, uh, intracranial pressure spikes over 20. And that is actually the first line, first tier recommendation. It is really the uh, the best level two supported intervention that we have. And uh, some of that came from Steve Shine's paper, uh, which actually uh, showed a comparison of several of the first tier therapies, uh, uh, such as sedatives and, uh, and hyperosmolar therapy. And he, he found that um, hypertonic saline was the only therapy that both uh, reduced ICP and actually improved CPP. There also is an important recommendation against the use of bolus administration of midazolam and fentanyl, uh, or either alone, as a, a first-tier approach to ICP crisis. And that's based largely on the work out of WashU by Welch and Jose Pineda's group. And um, I, I think one of the things about that that is an important caveat, though, is that we really need to assume that the patient is appropriately sedated 
and, and has appropriate analgesia on board. Uh, this is just going over and above that. Uh, it's also, I think, important, although not changing, that there really aren't recommendations for or against neuromuscular blockade because uh, we just don't have uh, good evidence to make a, a reasonable recommendation. And uh, so that's really left to the treating physician. I think the one of the other real nice advances are the recommendations for temperature control or hypothermia. And uh, certainly avoidance of fever is recommend, uh, recommended. But we now have a level two recommendation based on several studies against prophylactic hypothermia. In other words, applying it right after the injury, kind of in a preemptive strike manner. But we also do have a level three recommendation for hypothermia if you need to use it as a second tier therapy for ICP control. Um, one of the other uh, changes, and I think a very overdue and, uh, and excellent uh, to have some data to support it now is that uh, starting uh, early nutritional support within the initial 72 hours and uh, is suggested uh, to uh, decrease mortality and improve outcome. And uh, we actually, I mean, all of us kind of believe that forever, but we actually finally have some data uh, to make a recommendation on that. Those are, those are some of the major changes from the, from the last guideline out of the, out of the 22 uh, recommendations. Well, this is certainly a, um, an amazing document and um, will be extraordinarily helpful and um congratulate you all on having put it together. What are the remaining needs in this area in terms of research and other uh, work that we need to do? It's certainly pretty clear that uh, although we are excited about some progress with these guidelines and actually had much more to work with this time than in the past, um, I think that it's pretty clear we, we don't have any level one evidence and we have a scant amount of level two evidence. And uh, so one of the things, obviously, we're very hopeful that the ADAPT trial, which now has finished even one year follow up. Uh, this is Mike Bell, uh, uh, Mike Bell's trial, uh, comparative effect in this trial is going to generate uh, some better data. It's a thousand patients with kids with severe TBI with uh, all of them with ICP monitoring, that that is going to uh, really help us. Uh, I mean, I, I, although we can't talk about any of the findings uh, of the various effects of different therapies, we certainly can say, and it's already been published from that trial, that the heterogeneity between centers is, is tremendous. And uh, uh, that's based on the fact that uh, obviously we don't have really strong level two evidence, uh, uh, even for tier one, let alone uh, second uh, second tier therapies for refractory ICP. Um, I think that uh, some other uh, areas that really are important is. Uh, you know, we all believe that there are important age-related differences, and some of the papers suggest that there are, uh, for instance, the Chambers study with different CPP thresholds for age, et cetera. But 
nothing reached a level of definitive enough evidence to to come out with uh, strong statements uh, on that. Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, another area that we all feel is important, underserved, but very uh, a fundamental uh, uh, problem in pediatric TBI is abusive head trauma. And uh, every time we've met, we've wanted to be able to make some specific recommendations, but we're, we're all still waiting for the studies. And maybe those will follow within the ADAPT trial. Abusive head trauma is not excluded. Uh, probably the, the other area of research and or future uh, understanding that um, I think is, has not really been tackled adequately. We tried to actually take a stab at in the algorithm, and I, I hope people really get excited about it because there are some things in the algorithm article that we all know are important, but you just can't find in studies. Uh, things like, well, we, we generate a threshold of 20 or a CPP of 40 or a hemoglobin of 7, but we all know that not all patients probably are optimal at a given threshold and that those thresholds are minimum numbers. And the goal is to avoid breaching them. And uh, these kind of points are rarely covered or things such as, well, you got three or four monitors and you're titrating the ICP and now CPP becomes a problem or brain tissue O2 becomes a problem. And the the interface between them is one that we really need to understand better how to optimize and prioritize. And, uh, and things such as uh, weaning, what's, you know, we always take the last thing that we put on off first, and presumably that's the best approach, but there really aren't any studies to that. Another thing we tried to tackle, but we don't have good evidence, there's only a few papers in adults on is what's the right approach to herniation? And, uh, and, and uh, another thing is, well, one patient blows through the whole protocol in, in an hour, and another patient behaves very nicely, and we treat them over three or four days. And are those patients so fundamentally different that the approach really needs to be different? Do a decompression right up front, for instance, et cetera. How do we define them? And then the final thing that I think is another very important remaining question, and again, we tried to address in the algorithm article, are some of the reports coming out, uh, Tellen Bennett's uh, most notably, is what about management of severe TBI without ICP monitoring? And, uh, you know, some of these studies, these big database studies are suggesting that it it not beneficial, et cetera. And uh, what's the real story on that? And uh, if you were going to do that, what's your protocol and what's your treatment based on? And and obviously the history of using ICP monitoring to come up with therapies makes any kind of regimen that you come up for not ICP monitoring based on all your experience in ICP monitoring. So these are some of the, I think, really important questions that uh, uh, it's kind of an exciting time. And I think they're on, on the forefront and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that the next guidelines will have a few uh, pieces of evidence in some of these important uh, gaps. I, I think you've done some very important work here. And as you have outlined, there's a whole lot more to be done um, and we'll, 
certainly improve the care of children with TBI with these guidelines. And we'll look forward to the next guideline update in another few years. Thank you very much, Pat, for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome, Margaret. It's an honor and a pleasure to, uh, to participate. Uh, uh, thanks again. We have been talking with Dr. Pat Kahanek, the director of the Safar Center for Resuscitation Research at the University of Pittsburgh. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Philips and Massimo have teamed up to provide a non-invasive, continuous hemoglobin monitoring solution that seamlessly integrates into your critical care workspace. The solution combines the innovative monitoring capabilities of Philips and Teleview with advanced Massimo Rainbow Set technology to provide real-time visibility to changes or lack of changes in a patient's hemoglobin concentration. To learn more, visit philips.com slash Massimo. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York. She is a former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. She is currently serving as Associate Editor of Critical Care Medicine and Senior Associate Editor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.